There is something about music that is very, very powerful. I believe that music can stir our emotions and can capture our hearts and can make things stick in our memory in a way that normal spoken words rarely can. Let me give you an example uh, from my own life of why I believe that music can be so powerful. I am very, very excited about December 25th this year. And it's not just because this December 25th is Christmas Day. It's also because there is a movie coming out on December 25th. And that's right, I'm excited about a movie. I know I've said before, I don't go to that many movies. But I'm going to this one because it's a movie based on the musical Les Miserables. Now, if you had told me, say, 10 years ago that I would be excited about anything related to a musical, I would have thought you were crazy. Because I grew up not caring anything for theater or plays or musicals. But I'm married into a family that really likes theater. And even still, I don't care that much for other musicals and other plays, but I do like this one musical because a few years ago, Shelley's family took me, they, they took us periodically to see various musicals and plays, trying to get a little culture into me. But there's this one musical with a strange French name called Les Miserables that captured my heart. And Les Miserables is a story, a powerful story of grace and redemption. It's one of those things, one of those stories that has something for everyone. Whether you like love stories, or whether you like a battle to fight, or whether you like strong heroes who experience major life transformation, Les Miserables has all of those. And it's a very engaging story, or at least it's really engaged me. And I really believe that it's the music that has drawn my heart in just as much as the story itself. The music has made the story come alive. Let me tell you the reason I think this. A few years ago, uh, after I kind of fell in love with the storyline, someone gave me as a gift a movie, Les Miserables, that was filmed about 14 years ago or so. It has some very big-name actors and actresses in it. I know it was very well done, but I think I've only watched it once since I received it. It has that powerful story in it, but the way it's presented is just in normal movie form, which normally is fairly engaging. But for this, I found that the musical was so much more engaging. I also read the book. The book, if you're interested, is probably one of the best deals you can ever find on a book in terms of page per, page per uh, money. 1,500 pages, got it for $7. Read it in one week. Because it's such an engaging storyline. So the book was excellent, but when I think of the story of Les Miserables, I don't think so much about the book, even though the book was excellent. I think of the music. It's the music of Les Miserables that runs through my mind any time I think of it. You see, I have the complete musical on CD. Three CDs, three hours long. One of the things you have to understand, understand about Les Miserables is there are no spoken words in it. They're all sung. And it has some very memorable tunes in it. And I'm actually in the process of doing some painting in my house during the last few weeks. This is one of the main things I always listen to when I'm painting. So in the last few weeks, I've listened to this whole thing, three hours long. I've listened to it over four times in the last few weeks. There was one time it finished. I had some painting left to do. So I started over and pushed play again. And, and each time I hear it, it's fresh. But, and it's, it's vibrant. It's something that really captures my heart and my attention. I can't explain it. I would have thought... I was crazy if I heard myself talking about this a few years ago. But as I said, I think it's that music 
that, that conveys a powerful story that's really captured my attention because it is that music that goes through my mind. Even last night I was laying in bed. For some reason I have the music of Les Miserables running through my mind. I woke up in the middle of the night. Maybe it's because I've been listening to it a lot, but it's running through my mind a lot. And, and one of the things that's happened is that because it's set to music, I've been able to memorize significant portions of the musical verbatim without even trying. That's the power of music. You probably have experienced the same thing, if not with the musical, than with music you hear on the radio or on CDs or in church. It's not hard to memorize things when they are set to music. And I think that's a picture of the power of music, that music can stir our emotions, it, it can make things memorable. Um, I mean, it can really just grab our heart in a, in a way that spoken words usually can't. And that's why I'm excited about this movie, Les Miserables, coming out on December 25th. Because it's not a, a normal movie. It's the entire musical, entirely set to the original music of the, of the, of the musical, but it's put in movie form so we can see it on the big screen. So I'm very excited about that. But I'm also, because of the power of music, I'm excited about the series that we're starting today called Carols. Because when you think about Christmas time, there are many special traditions and many special memories, oftentimes associated with Christmas. But through it all, I, I think that the music of Christmas time is one of those things that really sets Christmas apart in our memories oftentimes. It's music of, of Christmas is really the soundtrack that plays throughout this entire month for many of us. Uh, oftentimes playing in our homes or in our cars. If you go to a restaurant or to a store, you probably hear Christmas music in the background. If you come to church, you have Christmas music. Christmas music is something that we know well. If I started quoting a line of a Christmas song, odds are good you'd probably be able to pick up where I left off and continue it. Not because you try to memorize it, but again, that's the power of music. Music is very powerful to convey stories. And one of the cool things about Christmas songs is they can convey very deep, significant biblical truth in a very memorable way. And so through the course of the series, we're going to look at well-known Christmas carols and Christmas songs to, to find biblical truth in them that illuminates what's in Scripture about Christ's birth and help it to come alive for us in a very fresh way. And today we're beginning with the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So I invite you to take out two different books if you'd like to follow along today. One is the hymnal. You can find O Come, O Come, Emmanuel on page 245 of the hymnal. But also, we're not just looking at the hymns themselves. We're looking at the biblical basis for them. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. And as you do so, I'm going to pray for us as we embark on this series. Father, we thank you that you give us so much to celebrate, especially during this Christmas time. We recognize that you have given us many, many blessings, especially Christ. And I pray that as we go through the series, as we look at songs that are familiar to us, that you will bring the familiar story of Christ's birth to life in fresh and new ways. Just help us, Lord, to stand in awe of what you have done through Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. So first of all, a little of the history of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Odds are good it's going to be one of the oldest songs that you will ever sing. Because the, the roots of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel trace back, back into the 800s. About 1,200 years ago, in monasteries in Europe, there were monks singing or even chanting in Latin. And, and leading up to Christmas, there would be these certain phrases they would chant back and forth to one another. And these lines, these Latin phrases, are part of what we know today as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. 
And if you look at the lyrics of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and hear the tune, you can even hear uh, a faint um, hint of the chanted lyrics that it would go back and forth. And we're singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel at the close of the day service, so you'll be able to hear that. So the song started about 1,200 years ago as Latin phrases chanted in monasteries in Latin. And then you fast forward about 400 years, sometime around the 1200s, someone, we don't know who, took these standalone phrases and tied some of them together to create the song that we know as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But it was still in Latin. And we are not singing in Latin here today. So at some point, specifically 1851, an English pastor named John Mason Neal translated O Come, O Come, Emmanuel from Latin into English. This was a man who loved old Latin hymns and German hymns, and he wanted to make them contemporary for people of his day, so he would translate them in English. And he did that with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And this song is all about the anticipation of Emmanuel. Now, a very important question in this is, okay, what is Emmanuel or who is Emmanuel? We sing about that. What does it really mean? Well, Emmanuel basically means God with us. And in a generic sense, it means uh, just God's presence with us, that God's hand of blessing is evident um, in our midst. But in a very specific sense, which is what the song is talking about, Emmanuel literally means a person or a God come to earth in the form of a human being. And that's what the song is anticipating, the coming of God to this earth in the form of a human being. And so that's really what Emmanuel is talking about, and that's what the song is looking forward to. Now, one other practical question before we dive into the song. You may be wondering, okay, I, sometimes I see Emmanuel spelled with an E, sometimes with an I. Is there any difference there? No, there's not at all. It's just that in Hebrew, Emmanuel starts with an I. That's the spelling in Hebrew. And in, uh, in Greek, which is the New Testament language where we also see the word Emmanuel, it starts with an E. That's the only difference. And so there's the same either way. But it's all talking about the anticipation of God coming to earth in the form of a human being. And I want to read the first stanza of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is the most well-known to really set the stage for our study today. The first verse says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And the other verses really contain a very similar uh, sentiment here, all pointing to names or descriptions of Jesus, and then talking about the brokenness of this world, and then talking about how when Christ comes, he will make those things right. And the origin of at least that first verse comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 7. So we're going to flip over there right now to Isaiah chapter 7. Specifically, it comes from verse 14. And there God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah in about 735 B.C. And says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with son, or will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now this verse has direct application to Jesus as we'll see in a few minutes. But I want to hold off on a minute to jump into that direct application to Jesus because there's also a whole context of Isaiah 7 in which this verse occurs. I, I think a temptation as Christians is to take verses out of context that can prove a point. Um, and, and, and in this case, that would be applicable to, to say this points to Jesus. 
But it's very important if we want to take God's word seriously, which we do here at Freedens, it's very important that we ask, what does this verse mean in the original context to the original people who would have heard this statement in the first place back in 735 B.C.? And so when we look at the broader context of Isaiah chapter 7, we see that God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to a king in Judah named Ahaz. Ahaz was a very wicked king. He, he, he was doing a lot of bad things. He was leading the uh, Judah society away from God. And, and also there's a lot of political turmoil there because there are two other countries who were threatening to attack Judah. And Ahaz was very concerned. And repeatedly, uh, God spoke through Isaiah saying, Ahaz, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. And Ahaz repeatedly refused. And so uh, God spoke through Isaiah saying, Ahaz, you have nothing you need to worry about here because these two nations who are going to attack you, they're going to be overthrown very soon. They won't live very long. They will be defeated. And he says, to, to prove this to you, I'm going to give you a sign. And that's where verse 14 comes in, saying that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And it goes on in the following verses. Immediately after that, the same paragraph to say that before this young boy is just a couple years old, these two other kings of these two other nations will be defeated. And so it has, God is saying, you need to trust me rather than trusting yourself. And so when, when Isaiah's listeners would have heard Isaiah 14 in their time in, in about 735 B.C., I don't think they automatically would have jumped to the conclusion of, okay, God is talking here about the coming Messiah. I think instead they would, would have been thinking about a special child born right around then, to a young woman, because this, the Hebrew word for virgin can also simply be translated as, as a young woman of marriageable age. Not yet married, but soon to be married. Um, and so, so God's talking about a special child who will be born, and before he's very old, um, these nations will be overthrown. And so like I said, I don't think that the first hearers would have automatically jumped to the conclusion of the Messiah, but we know as Isaiah continues to unfold what God has planned for the future, that this passage actually has double fulfillment. One back in 730, 735 B.C. And the second ultimate fulfillment of this is in Jesus Christ, as we will see a little bit later. But as we journey on through uh, the book of Isaiah, even just two chapters later, we're going to see that God is continuing to drop hints of someone very special coming who is more than just a mere human being. I invite you to flip over in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7 is where God gives the next hint of someone coming who is very special. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now when I look at the beginning of verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. I hear an echo of Isaiah 7.14, where it says that the virgin will be with the child and give birth to a son. See, Isaiah is pointing out in verse 6 that there's a very special child who's going to be born. And this child will ultimately be a ruler, that he will reign on David's throne. He will establish a good kingdom, a life-giving kingdom that will go on forever and ever. 
And this child will ultimately have four different titles it lists out here. One is Wonderful Counselor, pointing to the divine wisdom that this person is going to have. This person will be called Mighty God, which points partly to his power, but also to his deity, the fact that he is God in human form. He's going to be called Everlasting Father, which is referring to his fatherly love, his shepherding care for the people around him. And he's going to be called the Prince of Peace, meaning that everywhere he goes, he's going to bring peace in his midst. What this is ultimately referring to is Jesus. But, but before we jump there even more, I want to point out the broader context of Isaiah 9, which is, again, this messianic prophecy. So you go back to verse 2, which is uh, the beginning of, of the statement that Isaiah is making. It points to the state of society in Judah, where Isaiah is addressing, he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, the light has dawned. He's saying that in that culture, there was a lot of darkness. There were a lot of problems. There was a lot of brokenness. It was the land of the shadow of death. And there was a lot of despair there, but God was going to send hope. Hope in the form of a special little child. And that, this, this message from Isaiah 9 is the same message that we see in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is talking about the special child, God with us, who will come. But each verse also talks about the struggles and the trials we face in this life, just like Isaiah 9 does. Verse 1 talks about ransoming captive Israel that mourns and lonely exile here. And I think about that, and I think this has a lot of relevance to us today because we also live in a world that has a lot of brokenness. Uh, even if we want to follow Christ wholeheartedly, at times it can feel like we are in exile, that, that we are kind of out on a little island by ourselves as society moves further and further away from God. As we see, for instance, the government uh, at times passing bills, they require Christians to do things that, that seem unbiblical. As we look at society around us, and, and see increasing numbers of people who are no longer claiming to be Christians. I read a recent study uh, that especially among younger people, uh, there are more and more people who rather than defaulting to saying, I'm a Christian, since I'm not a Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist, I must be a Christian. Rather than saying that, their chosen religious identity is categorized as none. More and more young people, I think any junior high or high school students in here probably can resonate with that in their schools, that they are seeing more and more people who want no religious affiliation, who, who want nothing to do with Christ, who don't believe in God. And so if you are a person who, in today's society who wants to wholeheartedly follow Christ, you're probably increasingly feeling a bit like an exile, like you're on an island, and can probably resonate some with the first verse out of this song. In the second verse, it talks about uh, dispersing the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. This is talking about the brokenness and even kind of the darkness of society. I talk with people pretty often who are dealing with a lot of deep challenges in their lives. And they, they feel that darkness weighing upon them, the struggles, the challenges, even the depression. And death's dark shadows. I bet that the very few, if any of us, have gone through our lives without losing someone who's very important to us. Death can, can wreak havoc with us and can make us yearn for something more where the sadness and the sorrow is wiped away. Verse 4 talks about uh, bidding envy, strife, and quarrels cease. 
We can probably all relate to relationships that, that, that have hurt us or caused pain, whether it's friends, family, co-workers, neighbors, just strangers who hurt us. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is speaking of a broken world, the same type of world that Isaiah was ministering into, the same type of world that we face today in both the Bible and here in the song. They speak of a hope that comes through Christ. Now, I think that in many ways, though, it's, it's a bit challenging for us to grasp what it would have been like in the B.C. days, in the t- days before Christ came, because especially for the nation of Israel, they were anticipating Christ. For well over 700 years before Jesus came, they were looking ahead to the Messiah, and they knew when that day came, he would change everything. But they didn't know when that day was going to come. I, I think it's tough for us to imagine what that anticipation would have been like. I think one of the closer parallels I can think of for us is the image or the idea of, of getting married, of having a wedding day. Think about it. When, when you have a wedding day, you're looking ahead to that day with joy. Um, if you're engaged or if you're in a serious relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend, you're, you're looking ahead to that wedding day just excited about what's going to happen then, knowing that it's going to be a day of joy, a day of celebration, um, also a day that's going to change your life in many, many ways. I know that, that some people look forward to that wedding day uh, especially women or girls from, say, even before they hit kindergarten or first grade. Uh, they're just excited about that. And, and I think that same sense of anticipation that's coming up for wedding day is kind of like what it would have been like to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. There's an excitement uh, in knowing that that will be a time of joy, a time of celebration, a time that changes everything. But there is a major difference between awaiting a wedding, especially if you have that date set, and awaiting the coming of the Messiah. Because when they were waiting for the Messiah, they did not know when he was going to come. And when you have a wedding date picked, you can count down to that day. Remember when Shelley and I were engaged, we made this, this little paper chain of all these different links that was hanging from the ceiling of the basement in our house. And each link represented one day in the countdown towards that wedding day. And, and we would take the link off each day and, and be able to think about that wedding day is coming sooner. And we knew, okay, December 18th is going to be that day. And so in a wedding, you can anticipate when that time comes. But in waiting for the Messiah, you don't really know. I mean, we sometimes get impatient if you have to wait just a few seconds for a web page to load. Or, or uh, we, I was at Walmart last night. Uh, Micaiah and I were just wandering around for a little while. And, and we were looking for the shortest line. And it's easy to get impatient if you have to wait in line for even two minutes, isn't it? Or on a bigger scale, if, if you're waiting for the right person to come along to marry, it can be easy to get impatient if you have to wait just a couple of years or waiting for a child to come along. It takes a long time. We are so easily impatient people. Think about what it would have been like for the Israelites to wait not just a few minutes or a few hours or a few years, but generation upon generation waiting for the Messiah to come. Remember, these prophecies in Isaiah were given well before 700 B.C. There would be many, many generations who would be born, who would live their lives and die, still waiting for that Messiah to come. But then, in the fullness of time, the Messiah did come. And we see that in in the beginning of the New Testament. For instance, over in Luke chapter 1, I want to read a passage that talks about how the anticipation was fulfilled in Jesus. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, says that in the sixth month, 
God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now from this passage, I want to point out a couple things that relate back to the passages in Isaiah. One is that, that it's going to be a virgin giving birth to the Messiah. That came directly from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, is made clear here with Mary. So that's a direct fulfillment of prophecy. The second thing is who Jesus is going to be, who this Messiah is going to be. This child is going to grow up to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. He's going to rule on the throne of his father David and have a kingdom that will never, ever end. Do you hear there the echoes from Isaiah chapter 9? Because there too it talked about a ruler who will be strong and powerful, who will rule on the throne of David and whose kingdom will never end. Jesus is the fulfillment of those hopes that were anticipated through all the years. And specifically, uh, back in Matthew's version of, of Jesus' uh, birth narrative, we see um, Matthew specifically pointing to Isaiah 7.14 as fulfillment of prophecy. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what this means is that Jesus was Emmanuel. Jesus was God stepping out of heaven, off his heavenly throne, and coming down to earth in the form of a human being. John says the word became flesh. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Theologically, this is called the incarnation, uh, which comes from a Latin word, uh, carne. You may have heard uh, that word. Carne literally means flesh, or, or, or in our terms, it may mean meat. Uh, you think about if you go to, or if you speak Spanish or eat at Taco Bell, uh, you may think of Jesus as God con carne. God, God was some meat on the bones. God was some flesh. That's who Jesus was. That's, that's what it means to be Emmanuel. Now you may be thinking, okay, yep, we've, we've covered this whole uh, hymn. We see that Jesus is the fulfillment of these hopes and these prophecies. Now we can just sing some nice sentimental songs and move on. But I want to encourage us not to move on so quickly. Because I believe the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has in many ways just as much relevance for us singing today as it would have for Israelites before the coming of Christ. Let me explain why. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is not technically um, a Christmas song. Christmas songs sing of Christ's birth. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is technically an Advent song. Advent speaks more generically of the coming of Christ. It's kind of like the difference between a pregnancy and a birth. Uh, birth is when the child comes. Pregnancy is all that time leading up to the child coming. And so O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is an Advent song singing about the anticipation of waiting for that time when Christ will be born. And, and we are in a time where we are waiting for an advent 
as well. We are waiting for a time for Christ to come. He's already come once, but Christ is going to come back a second time. He will return, not, not as a little baby again, but as a king to firmly establish his kingdom. He's already won the victory through his life, death, and resurrection. But he's coming to fully enforce that victory over death and over sin. This is the reason why we still have brokenness in our world today because, because Christ's kingdom is not fully established on earth yet. But it will be when he returns. And so we get to look ahead to that time and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And, and this anticipation of the return of Christ is very, very biblical. In fact, the next last verse of the Bible, Revelation twenty-two twenty-one, says, Come, Lord Jesus. That's how the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus. It's looking ahead, saying, Jesus, we're ready for you to return. And the question is, how do we cultivate that type of heart that yearns for Jesus? I, I think as American Christians, it's so easy for us to get satisfied with life on this earth and to forget about how amazing that is to think about Jesus returning to this broken world. And I really think that this Christmas season is a little microcosm of what happens in our broader lives to distract us. You see, during Christmas, we, we talk a lot about Jesus and we, and we celebrate things that relate to Jesus in many different ways. But it's easy for us to get distracted by a lot of other things that pull our ultimate focus off of Christ. We get, we get busy, we get focused on those other things. So I want to give us a, f- a few practical things that can help us to remember to st- how, how to stay focused on Christ during this Christmas season. One thing, these are things to recognize. One is to recognize our kids do not need more toys or more stuff. And in fact, neither do we. I mean, there are definitely necessities that we need. But I think we, it's easy to get drawn into that mentality that if we really want to show someone that we love them or if we want, really want to live a full lives ourselves... We need more stuff or we need to give more stuff. I mean, that's what the advertisements on TV tell us, isn't it? Just give more stuff. But we don't necessarily need more stuff to bring us happiness or to bring us joy, to bring us life. And um, I know that I kind of say that through gritted teeth a little bit because I know that there are some people here who don't want to hear that, especially kids are hoping their parents are not listening right now. Um, I remember when I was younger, I was one of those kids who would wake up at 2 or 3 a.m., excited about when I get to open presents on Christmas morning. I would just wait for that moment when I could go wake up my parents and go open the gifts. I was that kid who would create this massively long Christmas wish list by sitting down with multiple sheets of paper and cutting out pictures from toy catalogs and gluing them to those sheets of paper, just dreaming about what I could get. That's the common mentality around this time. Americans spend about $450 billion a year on Christmas stuff. But I don't believe it buys us more happiness. Most of that stuff doesn't bring us more than just momentary pleasure. So we don't need more stuff. If anything, we need more Jesus and we need more time together with the people that we love. And that points to the second thing, which is that busyness does not equal happiness. This is true of us in general, that we easily get far too busy and that distracts us from Christ and it also distracts us from investing time in our family and our friends. And that's especially the case during Christmas time. It's been said that if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And I think that, that busyness factor distracts us from Christ and from family and from friends so often. And so we need that freedom to say no, even the good opportunities that come up so we can focus on the most important things. So, so even during this Christmas season, don't be afraid to say no to things that are not essential 
so that you can focus in on the things that are more important. And finally, I think it's very important that we spend time with Jesus in Scripture. Scripture is the place where we can really get to know Christ deeply. And I have seen over and over again, even in the last few months, I've been reminded of this multiple times in multiple people's lives, that spending daily time in Scripture can transform our lives. I bet that there are some, many of us here, who, if you look at the time frame between Thanksgiving and Christmas, spend much more time shopping than we do in Scripture. Or for those of us like me who really don't care that much for shopping, we, we might spend much more time at Christmas parties and at holiday gatherings than we do in Scripture. And I think there's a problem there. It's not that these other things are bad. It's that sometimes they can push out the most important thing. So I wanted to challenge you. There are about two weeks from now till Christmas. If you do not currently spend regular, even daily time in Scripture, I want to challenge you to make that a priority between now and Christmas. Start that habit pattern. If you don't know where to start, I suggest starting with the book of Luke. It's the biography of Jesus. It starts with Jesus' birth, so you'll get a lot of the stuff about this current season and really see a lot about Jesus. And I believe that if you make that a daily routine, you will grow closer to him and experience life transformation. And I think that if we can implement these things and keep that focus on Jesus, then coming back to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the refrain will really be the cry of our heart. It says, Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Now we are certainly not Israel, but I think that truth still holds true. That if we can rejoice in Christ by staying committed to him, we will be able to, to look ahead to the second coming of Christ with anticipation and keep our eyes focused on him rather than all the distractions around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we confess that it's so easy for us to get focused on so many other things besides you. And I pray that you will help us to identify those things where we need to set aside good things so that we can focus on you who is the best thing. And I pray especially for each one of us during this busy Christmas season that we will be able to focus on you and also to spend good quality time with family and with friends. Again, rejoicing over who you are. And God, I, I want to lift up those in our midst who are in need of the hope that Emmanuel offers. We know that we all live in a broken world. We all face pains and trials. I pray that we will be looking ahead to Jesus' return. But I especially want to lift up those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, especially those who've lost loved ones during this last year, but also those before, knowing that that, that, the whole, that leaves a hole in our hearts when we are grieving loved ones who are gone. But Lord, we pray that we will look ahead with anticipation of the return of Christ, knowing that at that time, all the tears will be wiped away and the sorrow will be removed and we will rejoice in your presence. We look forward to that time, to the second coming of Christ, as we look back on the first coming 2,000 years ago. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.